Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Brothers and sisters, we are running a race. A running race or a long running race is a wonderful analogy of our Christian journey. And before we zone out in considering this particular analogy, I challenge you to be alert when we're talking about running races. If your experience with running races is like mine, it'd be easy for me to disconnect pretty quickly about success in running races. In fact, when I think of sports even today, as much as I enjoy them, hockey and soccer are really my two favorite sports, yet I rarely watch them anymore. See, I used to have a a certain level of glory days in those sports, and when I watch it now, I realize how far I am from those days of glory, of foregone glory. So I watch sports now that I didn't really play that much growing up because I'm able to watch it and not feel so depressed about my deplorable state of physical affairs as it relates to being able to even run to half the half line of the field, let alone, you know, four miles and five miles in a game as it is for those who play the game of soccer. So when you hear about a race, if you have a bad history with running races, please see past the option of running a race to the fact that you are running a race. You may be meandering, you may be stalled out a bit, you may be going slow, but you, brother, you, sister, are running the race. And that's what Hebrews 12 gives us as a very vivid analogy of our Christian journey. Uh, We have read to this point the preeminence of Christ, uh, the evidence of of faith in the lives of many who lived before us as ordinary people in Hebrews 11, yet did great things by the faith God gave them. Now, Hebrews 12, we are encouraged to run the race with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And today we have some particular commitment points. You know, this whole book is a call to commitment. Today we have some commitment points that we are reminded of as we run this race. Hear God's word, Hebrews 12, 12 through 17. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for your holy word. We are thankful for the encouragement it gives us by your spirit. I pray, Lord, that you encourage the person here today, the brother, the sister here today, who they know they're running the race, but Lord, they're lagging or they're meandering or they're stalled out. I pray, Father, that you would encourage them by your word preached to run the race with endurance. Thank you for these exhortations. Lord, make them real to us this day as we think of particular ways in which we can commit once again to running this race, to be committed race runners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the first 10 chapters in the book of Hebrews are about Jesus. They're about how he fulfills all those forecasted prophecies, all those pictures of God's touch on his people's lives are fulfilled in the person of Christ. He's preeminent. He's superior to all those things. Those things had their purpose, but Christ is the fulfillment of all of it. 
don't go back, he's saying to the, Hebrew, the, the readers of Hebrews, don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to human mediators, to a system that is incomplete. We've seen the fulfillment. I know persecution is hard, but don't give up. Keep running the race is the message in the book of Hebrews. Stay committed. It's a call to commitment. Then chapter 11 serves, I really believe, not so much as to put examples before us of people we're supposed to be like, but rather examples of how God used broken, ordinary people to show the fruit of faith in. You know, we read of Jephthah, or we read of Samson, or all those people mentioned in Hebrews 11. The first thing that comes to my mind isn't constant faithfulness. It's the faithfulness of God that he would use a broken vessel to do great things through. Then chapter 12 begins with this call to run the race, looking to Jesus, looking to Christ. Then last week we looked at how the Father uses discipline in the lives of his children, because he loves us. He doesn't punish us. He disciplines us because he loves us and wants to craft us more and more into the image of his son. Now we come to really a litany of different uh, imperatives. If you look at the text in 12 through 17 of Hebrews 12, we are told to lift our drooping hands, strengthen our weak knees, make straight paths for our feet, strive for peace with everyone. See to it that you obtain grace, avoid the root of bitterness, strive after holiness. Several imperative statements, commands to do these things, to commit. Now I want to say from the onset The book's a call to commitment. This passage is about committed race running. Commit, commit, commit. Do, do, do. I hope that's not what you're getting out of this. I hope you're recognizing that the bedrock of all of this is the grace of God in Christ. That we can do these things because God empowers us to do them. You can't do them on your own. The very definition of grace is he does it in us. But there's this human responsibility we have to recognize the grace of God, be empowered by it, and enter a new level of commitment that you could not enter on your own. So when I say these things to you, I don't want this to be one of those sermons where you walk out feeling guilty about how you have to commit more. I mean, that's an effective way of preaching. Don't get me wrong. A lot of preachers do it. I can make you feel guilty. You'll change for two or three days during the week. And if you come back next week, I can do it again. And we can keep you going that way. But eventually you'll quit. You'll quit the the walk because it's like running on that that never-ending treadmill, that hamster in the wheel. So I don't want you to misunderstand. This isn't a bunch of moralisms. This is commitment to grace. It's a commitment to living in light of what God has done for us. He's speaking to his children, not to people who are trying to obtain salvation, but people who have been given salvation and are living to evidence it. That's the point of our text. It's the point of every text, I would say to you as believers. Let there be no mistake. It takes God-empowered commitment to run the race. Let's look at the passage and see several different ways in which we need to be committed First, commit to persevere through the hardships and the pains that will come with race running. Verse 12 and verse 13. Talk about vivid to those of us who have had such an experience. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. This is a wonderful, vivid picture to those of you who have, as I have, I've been forced to run a long distance. And you know the feeling, you know, you get tired and Good form is to keep your hands up and technically keep them open instead of tight like this. So you, the blood's flowing. You've got good balance. But when you get tired, boy, your hands start to drop. They droop. Your knees get weak. You, you wonder each step is a little bit more anxious than the next. You wonder if, it can, if you can be held up. If you've never experienced it, you've got to experience this once in your life. So go run right after the service and try this. You'll definitely understand what drooping hands and weakened knees are and how hard it is in that state to run straight. Very difficult to run straight at that point, which actually exacerbates any injuries that are there if you don't run straight to the point where something can come out of joint. 
This is very particular, and I think we can appreciate what is being said. But what is more uh, vivid to the reader who first read this is the illusion that this exact phrase, drooping hands and weakened knees, is to an Old Testament passage that pertains to Jesus. So again, I'm not telling you just to commit on the basis of commitment. I'm telling you because of Christ, you can commit. In fact, let me read for you the passage this is alluding to. It's Isaiah 35, 2 through 4. The context for Isaiah's prophecy, as you may recall, is that the first half of the book is written while the northern kingdom, the people of God, are being taken captive because of their sin. Assyria comes and takes them. So he laments over their being taken captive. The southern kingdom is on the slide downward morally as well. They're heading towards captivity as well, God's discipline. The prophet, though, by the Spirit of God, is able to forecast the day when Messiah would come and they would no longer have this pain of constantly falling into sin, constantly falling into this cycle and having to need this kind of radical deliverance. But Messiah would come and deliver them from their sins and the the penalty thereof. And so Isaiah 35, 2 through 4, says this, It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. In the midst of the pain and the discipline, he looks forward to the one who will come. And listen to the exact words of the prophet Isaiah. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. This is the time of Jesus' coming. And the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for water breaks forth from the wilderness and streams in the desert. A picture of the coming of Jesus is the exact words that make up the writer's words in Hebrews. Strengthen, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. Christ has come to save you. Without saying Christ, it's about Christ. This is how we can be committed, because Christ has come and given us salvation. Even the next phrase in verse 13 that speaks of keeping our feet straight is probably an allusion to Proverbs 4, 26 and 27. Ponder the path of your feet, Proverbs says, then your way shall be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Quite possibly, this is another allusion to an Old Testament reference. The passage is bidding us to keep our strength. Get up if we've fallen down. And we can do so by the power of Christ. Don't just get up on your own. I don't ever tell you, brother or sister, if you've fallen, just get up. Come on, get up. No, Christ will raise you up. Have you fallen this week? Have you fallen in your thought life and some action that you've taken? I say get up, but I say so by the power of Christ. Not by your ability to get yourself up or be more holy or be more moral or do more things. But in light of the grace of Jesus Christ, you can get up. And you can keep getting up. You may fall over and over as you move down the track of the Christian life. But get up. Keep getting up. Persevere. Commit to persevering through the hardships. When your knees are weak, when your hands are drooping, when it's tough to keep your feet going straight, persevere through this with God's help in Christ. I think of David Livingstone, the pioneer missionary to Africa, one of my favorite missionaries. He is said to have walked on his own two feet 29,000 miles in his life. His wife died early in their ministry, and he personally faced stiff opposition from his Scottish brethren who were the first to send him out to do this mission work. He ministered most of his ministry half-blind. His kind of perseverance is the kind that spurs me on personally when I think of this exact model of 
keeping on in Christ. He says this in his diary to the Lord. Send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. Sever me from any tie, but the tie that binds me to your service and to your heart. Commit to persevering through the hardships and the pains that will come, that will come with running this race. But also there's a a very brief call to commitment in the first part of verse 14. If you look there with me, strive for peace with everyone. It's just a, a short phrase, but it embodies so much that is important. Commit to live in peace with everyone. This is an important part of the commitment to running the race well. Commit to being at peace with each other. Now, I'll say from the onset, it's not that you're going to agree with everyone, but be at peace with everyone as much as it depends on you, as much as you can do something about it. And I know uh, that you may have long past things that have occurred that you don't know how you can strive after peace. Well, strive after peace in those situations to the best of your ability. Be at peace with everyone. And this particularly means within the body of believers, those who are running the race with you, strive for peace. It's a simple but important exhortation. I think there can hardly be a more or a greater impediment to our running the race than disunity among us. I want you to think for a moment of the speed skating you just saw in the Olympics. They're all running against each other. Now, they're not mortal enemies necessarily. However, when you see them skate, you see how close they get, all the falls and the crashes that have occurred. They're racing against each other. And in their, in their goal is to do it fast and do it first. So you understand why they do this. But you see how difficult it is uh, to win the race when you're racing against everybody? Well, slow down, everybody, because we're not running it as fast as we can, and we're not trying to be first. We're trying to run the race with endurance and focus together, which means we have to run it together. And if we're at disunity with one another, or disharmony, we can't run that race well. It's very difficult to run when you have some kind of disharmony among brothers and sisters in the community. Disunity is a sure marker of people who have not understood God's grace, have not walked in his grace, maybe aren't even his people, if they don't bear that mark. In fact, what does Jesus say the mark of the church is? It's not all the things we've come in America to think it is. It's not a huge church. It's not great programs. It's not a polished preacher, you're fortunate. It's not all these different things. It has to do with whether we love one another. They will know you by your love for one another. Because it's so supernatural. It's so radically different from what the world does. So he tells us, in one simple phrase, strive for peace with everyone because you can. And you know, even the secularists have figured it out. It has been stated that 90% of all the people who fail in their life's vocation fail because they cannot get along with people. Running with teammates makes us stronger and more apt to finish the race. Conflict is the supreme drain of vital energy. We spend time persisting in conflict It drains energy from the things we ought to be striving after in the race. I want you to apply this in the most basic level. Uh, Take your marriage relationship when you have disharmony with your spouse. It drains vital energy from your overall walk with the Lord, doesn't it? Especially it's God's appointed one flesh union. You can't be at odds with your spouse for long without that causing harm to your personal walk with the Lord. Uh, I could think of numerous times where I've had disagreement, Sherry and I have had disagreement, and it's just the Lord in his discipline will not let us rest until we address it and become unified again. That's just my most basic, most important human relationship. But then I have the same dynamic with my children. Uh, you've been in households that are unrestful. Maybe you've been in your household like this, where you come home from work or you come home from where you are and it just feels heavy. You'd rather be at work. You'd rather be somewhere else than come to that place. It is so unrestful. And we are told here, strive for peace. Do whatever you can to maintain peace. Not at the expense of truth, 
but maintain peace so far as it depends on you. There's an interesting story told of two men who lived in a small village, and they got into a terrible dispute that they could not resolve for anything. So they decided to talk to the town sage to get his opinion. The first man went to the sage's home and told his version of what happened. When he finished, the sage said to him, You know what? You are absolutely right. The next person then began telling his side of the story. And after he began, got finished telling his side of the story, the sage said to him, You know what? You are absolutely right. His wife heard all this and said, What kind of advice is that? They told you two different things, and you said to both of them, they're right. This can't be right. And the sage said, you know what? You are absolutely right. Now, I don't mean that at the expense of truth, brothers and sisters. I'm just saying one thing I hope I'm learning as I get older is that I'm right a whole lot less than I thought I was. So when it goes to these kind of conflicts and these disputes, give the benefit of the doubt to your brother or to your sister. I'm not saying give away truth. I'm saying... Slow down on your search for justice. Slow down on your your campaign for that which is right and true. And rest in the fact that you could be wrong. And so strive for peace first, and then in process, work out the unity issues. I'm not saying it all sit sit against the truth. I'm just saying let's slow down in our rush to be right. This would help us greatly in how we show ourselves to the world as a unified people, rather than people constantly bickering among ourselves. How can you really run a race if you're tugging and pulling at each other all the time? How can we do it? Strive for peace with everyone. Also, the text tells us to commit to the pursuit of holiness. This is in the last part of verse 14. And then verse 16 and 17 give us some practical uh, ways in which we can pursue holiness or avoid the lack of holiness. But look at the first part, or the second part of verse 14 where we are really called to commit or strive for holiness. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with, without which no one will see the Lord. So strive for peace and strive for holiness, we have in verse 14. And remember here, brothers and sisters, the, the context is vital. We are to commit to striving after holiness. But this is in light of what's been given to us by faith in Christ. So we strive after holiness, not as a means to make ourselves acceptable to God, but as a means to manifest God's life in us. This is why we strive after holiness. When God gives us a new heart, takes out our heart of stone, and puts in a heart of flesh, what that means is that he gives us a new set of affections. It's not that our sinful flesh is all of a sudden gone. It's that now we have a new set of affections. Now, it's going to war against the sinful flesh, but we're striving after holiness. Now, this is a difficult concept. At least it has always been a difficult concept for me. Even with uh, study and formal study, informal study, discussion, reading, I still always struggle with this call to be holy as I am holy, the Lord says. Because I know my life, and even on a good week, I don't think of it as holy. Now, I understand positional holiness. I fall back in what I know to be doctrinally, biblically true. This is important. Positionally, the reason why we can sit under the Word of God, be shaped by the Word of God, have access to the throne of grace, is because God has given us positional holiness because of His Son. He looks at us and he sees his son's righteousness. In that sense, I can understand Tony being holy, you being holy. But when I look at the struggle of my life, I have a difficult time understanding how is it that I can pursue holiness like this? Well, the first thing, recognize what it doesn't say. It doesn't say obtain absolute holiness. That's not what it says. It says strive after holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Without the striving after holiness, no one will see the Lord. Only those who 
who are in Christ that are new creations will strive after. So the striving, the struggling, the working, that's the process that gives us assurance that we are indeed God's. We see things different with a new affection. It said, well, when John Brown, a Scottish theologian, said, holiness does not consist in mystic speculations, enthusiastic fervors, or uncommanded austerities. It consists in thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills. That is only something God can work in us. C.S. Lewis said it well, too, because you may think sometimes that holiness, that must mean being boring or going living in a, in a monastery somewhere, and that's not true at all. It's the same life we live with a new affection, with a new angle on everything, with a new striving after Christ instead of everything else that's fading. And Lewis said how little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it's irresistible because it's Christ. We're striving after peace who is embodied in Christ. We're striving after holiness, who is Christ. All our striving is after Christ. In the particular ways in which it looks is our holiness, peace, justice, the fruits of the Spirit. These are all things that Jesus embodies. It is. You know, a passage that has become of utmost encouragement to me, and I hope it is to you, comes in Romans chapter 7. Helps me understand this dilemma that is within myself and within you if you are a believer in this race. I believe firmly that this is Paul writing as a Christian. This is not Paul writing uh, about a day when he wasn't a Christian. We know this from the language. Hear these words. Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. He understood his flesh was still sinful. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. He recognizes that His flesh is sinful, but he's been given a new affection and wants to do the right thing now, but can't in himself. For I do not the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Does anyone relate with Paul? I can't believe people will say that this is Paul before he was a believer. This is, this is me now. This is exactly the experience that I have in this pursuit of holiness. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What he's describing is striving after holiness. Just after the last service, I had a brother say to me, I don't know if I'm in the race. Are you struggling, brother? I'm struggling. You're in the race. That you're exactly in the race. Now, what I'd be worried about is if you walked out and said, that didn't mean anything to me, and I'm not running. I don't, I'm not, there's no problems. That's the one I'm worried about. Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And here's the beautiful, the beauty of the gospel. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Recognizing this struggle and this battle is really the beginning of actually defeating it. Recognizing the reality, the sin in our members, as it is said. A.W. Pink writes a wonderful little booklet called Personal Holiness. And listen to what he says. But can persons be sinful and holy at one and the same time? Genuine Christians discover so much carnality, filth, and vileness in themselves that they find it almost impossible to be assured that they are holy. Nor is this difficulty solved as in justification by recognizing that though completely unholy in ourselves, we are holy in Christ. 
For Scripture teaches that those who are sanctified by God are holy in themselves, through the evil, though the evil nature has not been removed from them. See, what the passage is talking about is the process we call sanctification. Sanctification means to be set apart. Holy means to be set apart. And so we're in a process of being set apart. Positionally, we're holy in Christ. Now, the life we're living, the race we're running, is God setting us apart more and more for his service with all the struggle that's included in that. That's the process of sanctification. Justification is a one-time act where God transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Then the rest of it is sanctification, the setting apart of our lives now, which is progressive. It's a process. It goes on, and it's going on now. There's another wonderful passage, or another uh, wonderful quote I want to share with you from a man named Jim Elif. He says this, If a professing believer does not love holiness, appreciate holy people, and holy conversation, value a holy environment, etc., on his way to heaven, he will find that heaven will be held to him. Believers do sin. The Bible's clear about that. Yet their sins are more out of weakness than the old rebellion and apathy. The believer is a new creature with new affections. The spirit is willing even if the flesh is weak. He goes on to say this, A disinterest in holiness is at the root of the problem for the non-believer. He is not stirred by a discussion on the holiness of the authentic believer unless God is initiating the work of regeneration in him. He wants the benefits of the Christian life but is not astounded at his own rebellion and sickened by it to the point of desiring a holy life. He may, be like, he may like respectability but not holiness. The true believer is constituted differently and is therefore hungry for holiness and can be prompted by the Spirit and the Word when he hears an appeal to holiness. This is a huge indicator. Are you a Christian? Do you strive after holiness? Does your sin sicken you? This is a huge indicator that you're in the race, brother. You're in the race, sister. Commit, though, now to the pursuit of Christlikeness after our Savior, the one who has saved us. You know what's wonderful about this passage? It gives us an immediate warning about what we should look look to guard against. Verse 16 and 17 serve as guarding against defilement or being derailed on this pursuit of holiness. Look at verse 16. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, what do these two have in common, sexual immorality and Esau? The commonality is the fact of sins of the flesh. There are many kinds of sins, but there are some kinds that are easier to fall into than others that will immediately derail us. You could be very strong in the Lord and fall to sexual sin very easily, especially today. Uh, You could be very strong in the Lord and have your fleshly appetites take over your ration. If you've ever been on a diet, and I've been on a few in my life, you can tell they don't take well. At any rate, I get on a diet, and I say to myself, I do really well for a while, and then I see that one thing. And I lose all rationality, all perspective, and I've got to have that one thing. And that's the ease with which we can fall into sensual sin if we're not careful. Same with sexual sin. You'd be going along well, and then one thing causes you to stumble, and it grabs you, and it tangles you, and it's it's like it enslaves you. And sins of the flesh have this power to take the strongest of people down. And one miscue in these areas can have lifetime of consequences, not as it relates to God's Uh, forgiveness for you, but just in the consequences that play out because of us not being careful in these areas. So pastorally, the letter here is saying, be holy and also recognize sins of the flesh. They can fall. They can befall you at any time. Anyone. In a fleshly momentary lapse, we can lose our access to an inheritance. And don't misunderstand what verse 17 is saying, talking about Esau and his 
just for a bowl of stew, basically, for a mess of pottage, gave up his earthly inheritance. It's not speaking of, of an, 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 uh, here in this passage about eternality. It's saying, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, the blessing was an earthly blessing. He was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He was seeking after that earthly reward that he just lost. It wasn't a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. It was the kind of sorrow that says, I missed out on this inheritance, this earthly inheritance. And that mimics or that shows what the, the attitude of the one who is not truly repentant, truly seeking after holiness, truly seeking to avoid those things that defile us. That's the kind of person that, for which there is no hope, there is no restoration. Finally, we have what I think covers so much regarding our commitment to run the race well. Verse 15. Commit to cultivate the grace of God in your life. Verse 15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now this verse, when we read, we see grace, and we see the root of bitterness. They stick out to us. And the meaning of this warning is easy when you think of the imagery of a root. You know what happens when a root is not taken out. That plant will continue to show itself over and over again and have more and more effect. I'm reminded of uh, weeding the garden and having children weed the garden and come out all proud that they just helped Daddy weed the garden. And they've got handfuls of weeds in their hands, but none of the roots are there. So I know full well what this means. Sherry's going to have to go back and weed the rest of the garden. It means more work. It means that those weeds are going to come up again. They're going to be stronger the next time around. They've gotten thicker. If you let the root of bitterness stay, it will have a damaging effect. Now, let's consider the root of bitterness for a moment. What is bitterness? Bitterness is when you feel like what? You've been slighted. That's what makes a person bitter. Because I've been slighted. You and Peter, you did, and then you stay bitter about it. Instead of getting the situation right, striving for peace, I'm going to hold this out on you. Until I get my pound of flesh, I'm going to be bitter about it. It's going to make it worse. You all know at least one bitter person who have chosen to live their life this way. They probably have health problems from their bitterness, probably have problems all around them, and the root is getting stronger and stronger, and it does exactly what the text says, springs up, causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. The bitter people beget bitter children who infect bitter communities. That's the truth of bitterness. It's not to be allowed in our midst, in ourselves. Bitterness is self-worship. Bitterness has to do with saying, you owe me. And the only thing, the only thing that will counteract bitterness is grace. A proper comprehension, a proper understanding of grace. That is the only thing that will guard us as people in Christ against bitterness in ourselves in a community in Christ against bitterness. It's constantly and consistently being reminded of what grace is. Do you see, when you understand grace, you have to be confronted with your own sin in the depth of it. And when that happens to me, your sin doesn't really stand out to me nearly as much because I've got so many of my own problems. It may be true that you did this or this and I didn't do, but there's things about me that you don't know that are, that are as cosmically treasonous against God as anything you have just thought of in your mind or done. And so when I start focusing on my own need for, for salvation and a Savior, I have much less time to be bitter about how I got slighted. The only person in history that truly got slighted was Jesus Christ on my behalf. 
that was not a just sentence to have him take on my righteousness or lack thereof and then give me his righteousness. There's nothing immediately just about that. It's by the good pleasure of God's will that he was willing to do that. And when I bask in that grace, I have just less time to moan and groan and whine and become bitter. And then that spreads, that grace spreads when it's applied to our bitterness. Whenever you are bitter, whenever I confront a bitter person, the first thing I pray for myself or for that person when confronted with it is, I pray, Lord, that this person would come to understand how much they mean to Christ. Because when they realize how much they mean to Christ, whether someone slighted them or not, will start to just pale in comparison. They have not accepted Christ's unconditional pardon. And so they look for other people to exact something from. And the root of bitterness squelches out grace. But when grace is applied, it's the thing that starts to take down the root of bitterness. Cultivate the grace of God in your life. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Literally what this means is that they would comprehend, come to a grasp of, to possess God's grace, to bask in God's grace, to live in light of God's grace as grace really is free and sovereignly administered by God. You know, there are many points in church history that are highlights, and I try to bring them up whenever I can, uh, whenever they fit well with what is being said, because I think it, we draw great strength, as we learned in Hebrews 11, from what's happened before. Now, us Presbyterians, if you're new to our tradition, we're very fond of everything that happened up to Augustine. Then we don't really pick up church history again until we get to Calvin. Luther's good, but Calvin, that's where we really start. Now, the reality is, is that God is a Lord of grace. And he has, even with the, the dullest, saddest moments in the life of the church, he had these beacons of grace, sovereign grace that showed up. 529 in the Council of Orange is one of those great moments in the history of the church that you don't hear much about. Because in the Council of Orange, they were confronting the issue of proper definition of the gospel. And this is in the midst of all sorts of corruption that was going on. And listen to the statement that comes out of the Council of Orange, because I think it is a classic example of the need to cultivate grace in a proper understanding in our commitment to run the race. The Council concluded this, if anyone makes the assistance of grace dependent on the humility or obedience of man, it does not agree that it is a gift of grace itself and that we are obedient and humble, he contradicts the apostle who says, what have you that you did not receive? And but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And they put the scripture reference every time they make these statements. The council goes on to say, if anyone affirms that we can form any right opinion or make any right choice which relates to the salvation of eternal life or that we can be saved by assent to the pre preaching of the gospel through our natural powers without the effectual work of the Holy Spirit who makes all whom he calls gladly and willingly assent and to believe in the truth, he is led astray from the plain teaching of scripture by exalting the natural ability of man and does not understand the voice of God who says in the gospel, for apart from me, you can do nothing. And the word of the apostle, not that we are competent of ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Our competence is from God. That's the council of origin 529. I only wish the Bishop of Rome at that time had read that because it's a clear picture, a clear picture of sovereign grace understood in the life of the church. In a powerful moment indeed for the church. And more particularly, more personally, it's a powerful point in your life when you come to understand the grace of God. That's how you will be a committed race runner.
because you understand who empowers you. You understand who picks you up when your arms are drooping and your your knees are getting weak. You understand who helps you to be at peace with one another. You understand who helps you to strive after holiness. It's pure and unfettered grace that saved us. It's pure, unfettered grace that keeps us in the race. We are saved by grace, and we are sanctified by grace. And we will be glorified in eternity by grace. Are you committed to running this race, brothers and sisters? Commit to persevering through the hardships and the pains of race running. God will give you the strength. Commit to live at peace with everyone. God will give you the conviction and sensitivity that you need and require. Commit to the pursuit of holiness. God will give you the desire for him. Commit to cultivate the grace of God in your life. A proper understanding of God's grace tends to make these other commitments more obtainable and realistic. Let us pray together. Lord, you have called us to commitment in your word and by your word. And then you promise to empower us. And we thank you for this, Lord. Help us to bask in your grace and respond to your grace by lives lived that honor you, that are holy, that are separate, that are set apart. And we pray this for the glory of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Make us a different people now and help the world to be changed as a result. In Jesus' name, amen.